Chapter 7 of Birds and Bees, Sharp Eyes and Other Papers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Suprada Urval Birds and Bees, Sharp Eyes and Other Papers by John Burroughs A Taste of Maine Birch the traveller and camper out in Maine, unless he penetrates its more northern portions, has less reason to remember it as a pine tree state than a birch tree state. The white pine forests have melted away like snow in the spring and gone downstream, leaving only patches here and there in the more remote and inaccessible parts. The portion of the state I saw, the valley of the Kennebec and the woods about Moxie Lake, had been shorn of its pine timber more than forty years before, and is now covered with a thick growth of spruce and cedar and various deciduous trees. But the birch abounds. Indeed, when the pine goes out, the birch comes in. The race of men succeeds the race of giants. This tree has great stay-at-home virtues. Let the somber, aspiring, mysterious pine go. The birch has humble everyday uses. In Maine, the paper or canoe birch is turned to more account than any other tree. I read in Gibbon that the natives of ancient Assyria used to celebrate in verse or prose the 360 uses to which the various parts and products of the palm tree were applied. The Maine birch is turned to so many accounts that it may well be called the palm of this region. Uncle Nathan, our guide, said it was made especially for the camper out. Yes, and for the woodman and frontiersmen generally. It is a magazine, a furnishing store set up in the wilderness, whose goods are free to every comer. The whole equipment of the camp lies folded in it and comes forth at the beck of the woodman's axe. Tent, waterproof roof, boat, camp utensils, buckets, cups, plates, spoons, napkins, tablecloths, paper for letters or your journal, torches, candles, kindling wood, and fuel. The canoe birch yields you its vestments with the utmost liberality. Ask for its coat and it gives you its waistcoat also. Its bark seems wrapped about it layer upon layer and comes off with great ease. We saw many rude structures and cabins shingled and sided with it and haystacks capped with it. Near a maple sugar camp, there was a large pile of birch bark sap buckets, each bucket made of a piece of bark about a yard square, folded up as the tinman folds up a sheet of tin to make a square vessel. The corners bent around against the sides and held by a wooden pin. When, one day, we were overtaken by a shower in traveling through the woods, our guide quickly stripped large sheets of the bark from a near tree, and we had each a perfect umbrella as by magic. When the rain was over and we moved on, I wrapped mine about me like a large leather apron 
and it shielded my clothes from the wet bushes. When we came to a spring, Uncle Nathan would have a birch bark cup ready before any of us could get a tin one out of his knapsack. And I think water never tasted so sweet as from one of these bark cups. It is exactly the thing. It just fits the mouth and it seems to give new virtues to the water. It makes me thirsty now when I think of it. In our camp at Moxie, we made a large birch bark box to keep the butter in, and the butter in this box, covered with some leafy boughs, I think improved in flavor day by day. Main butter needs something to mollify and sweeten it a little, and I think birch bark will do it. In camp, Uncle Nathan often drank his tea and coffee from a bark cup. The china closet in the birch tree was always handy, and our vulgar tinware was generally a good deal mixed, and the kitchen maid not at all particular about dishwashing. We all tried the oatmeal with the maple syrup in one of these dishes, and the stewed mountain cranberries using a birch bark spoon and never found service better. Uncle Nathan declared he could boil potatoes in a bark kettle, and I did not doubt him. Instead of sending our soiled napkins and table spreads to the wash, we rolled them up into candles and torches, and drew daily upon our stores in the forest for new ones. But the great triumph of the birch is, of course, the bark canoe. When Uncle Nathan took us out under his little woodshed and showed us or rather modestly permitted us to see his nearly finished canoe, it was like a first glimpse of some new and unknown genius of the woods or streams. It sat there on the chips and shavings and fragments of bark, like some shy, delicate creature just emerged from its hiding place, or like some wild flower just opened. It was the first boat of the kind I had ever seen, and it filled my eye completely. What woodcraft it indicated, and what a wild, free life, sylvan life it promised. It had such a fresh, aboriginal look as I had never before seen in any kind of handiwork. Its clear, yellow-red color would have become the cheek of an Indian maiden. Then, its supple curves and swells, its sinewy stays and thwarts, its bow-like contour, its tomahawk stem and stern, rising quickly and sharply from its frame, were all vividly suggestive of the race from which it came. An old Indian had taught Uncle Nathan the art, and the soul of the ideal red man looked out of the boat before us. Uncle Nathan had spent two days ranging the mountains looking for a suitable tree, and had worked nearly a week on the craft. It was twelve feet long and would seat and carry five men nicely. Three trees contribute to the making of a canoe besides the birch, namely, the white cedar for ribs and lining, the spruce for roots and fibers to sew its joints and bind its frame, and the pine for pitch or rosin to stop its seams and cracks. It is handmade and homemade, or rather wood-made, in a sense that no other craft is, except a dugout and it suggests a taste and a refinement that few products of civilization realize. The design of a savage, it yet looks like the thought of a poet, and its grace and fitness 
haunt the imagination. I suppose its production was the inevitable result of the Indian's wants and surroundings, but that does not detract from its beauty. It is, indeed, one of the fairest flowers the thorny plant of necessity ever bore. Our canoe, as I have intimated, was not yet finished when we first saw it, nor yet when we took it up with its architect upon our metaphorical backs and bore it to the woods. It lacked part of its cedar lining and the rosin upon its joints, and these were added after we reached our destination. Though we were not indebted to the birch tree for our guide, Uncle Nathan, as he was known in all the country, yet he matched well these woodsy products and conveniences. The birch tree had given him a large part of his tuition, and kneeling in his canoe and making it shoot noiselessly over the water with that subtle yet indescribably expressive and athletic play of the muscles of the back and shoulders, the boat and the man seemed born of the same spirit. He had been a hunter and trapper for over forty years. He had grown grey in the woods, had ripened and matured there, and everything about him was as if the spirit of the woods had had the ordering of it. His whole make-up was in a minor and subdued key, like the moss and the lichens, or like the protective colouring of the game. Everything but his quick sense and penetrative glance. He was as gentle and modest as a girl. His sensibilities were like plants that grow in the shade. The woods and the solitudes had touched him with their own softening and refining influence. Had indeed shed upon his soil of life a rich deep leaf mould that was delightful, and that nursed, half concealed, the tenderest and wildest growths. There was grit enough back of and beneath it all, but he presented none of the rough and repelling traits of character of the conventional backwoodsman. In the spring, he was a driver of logs on the Kennebec, usually having charge of a large gang of men. In the winter, he was a solitary trapper and hunter in the forests. Our first glimpse of main waters was Pleasant Pond, which we found by following a white, rapid, musical stream from the Kennebec three miles back into the mountains. Main waters are, for the most part, dark-complexioned, Indian-colored streams, but Pleasant Pond is a pale face among them both in name and nature. It is the only strictly silver lake I ever saw. Its waters seem almost artificially white and brilliant, though of remarkable transparency. I think I detected minute shining motes held in suspension in it. As for the trout, they have veritable bars of silver until you have cut their flesh, when they are the reddest of gold. They have no crimson or other spots and the straight lateral line is but a faint pencil mark. They appear to be a species of lake trout peculiar to these waters, uniformly from 10 to 12 inches in length. And these beautiful fish, at the time of our visit, last of August at least, were to be taken only in deep water upon a hook baited with salt pork. And then you needed a letter of introduction to them, they were not to be tempted or cajoled by strangers. We did not succeed in raising a fish, although instructed how it was to be done, until one of the natives, 
a young and obliging farmer living hard by came and lent his countenance to the enterprise i sat in one end of the boat and he in the other my pork was the same as his and i maneuvered it as directed and yet those fish knew his hook from mine in sixty feet of water and preferred it four times in five evidently they did not bite because they were hungry but solely for old acquaintance sake pleasant pond is an irregular sheet of water two miles or more in its greatest diameter with high rugged mountains rising up from its western shore and low rolling hills sweeping back from its eastern and northern covered by a few sterile farms i was never tired when the wind was still of floating along its margin and gazing down into its marvelously translucent depths the boulders and fragments of rock were seen at a depth of twenty-five or thirty feet strewing its floor and apparently as free from any covering of sediment as when they were dropped there by the old glaciers aeons ago our camp was amid a dense grove of second growth of white pine on the eastern shore where for one i found a most admirable cradle in a little depression outside of the tent carpeted with pine needles in which to pass the night the camper out is always in luck if he can find sheltered by the trees a soft hole in the ground even if he has a stone for a pillow the earth must open its arms a little for us even in life if we are to sleep well upon its bosom i have often heard my grandfather who was a soldier of the revolution tell with great gusto how he once bivouacked in a little hollow made by the overturning of a tree and slept so soundly that he did not wake up till his cradle was half full of water from a passing shower what bird or other creature might represent the divinity of pleasant pond i do not know but its demon as of most northern inland waters is the loon and a very good demon he is too suggesting something not so much malevolent as arch sardonic ubiquitous circumventing with just a tinge of something inhuman and uncanny his fiery red eyes gleaming forth from that jet-black head are full of meaning then his strange hoarse laughter by day and his weird doleful cry at night like that of a lost and wandering spirit recall no other bird or beast he suggests something almost supernatural in his alertness and amazing quickness cheating the shot and the bullet of the sportsman out of their aim i know of but one other bird so quick and that is the hummingbird which i have never been able to kill with a gun the loon laughs the shotgun to scorn and the obliging young farmer above referred to told me he had shot at them hundreds of times with his rifle without effect they always dodge his bullet we had in our party a breech-loading rifle which weapon is perhaps an appreciable moment of time quicker than the ordinary muzzle loader and this the poor loon could not or did not dodge he had not timed himself to that species of firearm and when with his fellow he swam about within rifle range of our camp letting off volleys of his wild ironical ha-ha he little suspected the dangerous gun that was matched against him as the rifle cracked both loons made the gesture of diving 
but only one of them disappeared beneath the water, and when he came to the surface in a few moments, a hundred or more yards away, and saw his companion did not follow, but was floating on the water where he had last seen him, he took the alarm and sped away in the distance. The bird I had killed was a magnificent specimen, and I looked him over with great interest. His glossy checkered coat, his banded neck, his snow-white breast, his powerful lance-shaped beak, his red eyes, his black, thin, slender, marvelously delicate feet and legs issuing from his muscular thighs and looking as if they had never touched the ground, his strong wings well forward while his legs were quite at the apex, and the neat, elegant model of the entire bird, speed and quickness and strength stamped upon every feature all delighted and lingered in the eye the loon appears like anything but a silly bird unless you see him in some collection or in the shop of the taxidermist where he usually looks very tame and goose-like nature never meant the loon to stand up or to use his feet and legs for other purposes than swimming indeed he cannot stand except upon his tail in a perpendicular attitude but in the collections he is poised upon his feet like a barnyard fowl all the wildness and grace and alertness goes out of him my specimen sits upon a table as upon the surface of the water his feet trailing behind him his body low and trim his head elevated and slightly turned as if in the act of bringing that fiery eye to bear upon you and vigilance and power stamped upon every lineament the loon is to the fishes what the hawk is to the birds he swoops down to unknown depths upon them and not even the wary trout can elude him uncle nathan said he had seen the loon disappear and in a moment come up with a large trout which he would cut in two with a strong beak and swallow piecemeal neither the loon nor the otter can bolt a fish under the water he must come to the surface to dispose of it I once saw a man eat a cake under water in London. Our guide told me he had seen the parent loon swimming with a single young one upon its back. When closely pressed, it dove, or div, as he would have it, and left the young bird sitting upon the water. Then it too disappeared, and when the old one returned and called, it came out from the shore. On the wing overhead, the loon looks not unlike a very large duck. But when it alights, it ploughs into the water like a bombshell. It probably cannot take flight from the land, as the one Gilbert White saw and describes in his letters was picked up in a field, unable to launch itself into the air. From Pleasant Pond, we went seven miles through the woods to Moxie Lake, following an overgrown lumberman's tote road, our canoe and supplies, etc., hauled on a sled by the young farmer with his three-year-old steers. I doubt if birch bark ever made rougher voyage than that. As I watched it above the bushes, the sled and the luggage being hidden, it appeared as if tossed in the wildest and most tempestuous sea. When the bushes closed above it, I felt as if it had gone down or been broken into a hundred pieces. Billows of rocks and logs and chasms of creeks and spring runs kept it rearing and pitching in the most frightful manner the steers went at a spanking pace indeed 
It was the regular bovine gale. But the driver clung to their side amid the brush and boulders with desperate tenacity and seemed to manage them by signs and nudges, for he hardly uttered his orders aloud. But we got through without any serious mishap, passing Mosquito Creek and Mosquito Pond and flanking Mosquito Mountain, but seeing no mosquitoes, and brought up at dusk at a lumberman's old hay barn standing in the midst of a lonely clearing on the shores of Moxie Lake. Here we passed the night and were lucky in having a good roof over our heads, for it rained heavily. After we were rolled in our blankets and variously disposed upon the haymow, Uncle Nathan lulled us to sleep by a long and characteristic yarn. I had asked him, half jocosely, if he believed in spooks, but he took my question seriously and, without answering it directly, proceeded to tell us what he himself had known and witnessed. It was, by the way, extremely difficult either to surprise or to steal upon any of Uncle Nathan's private opinions and beliefs about matters and things. He was as shy of all debatable subjects as a fox is of a trap. He usually talked in a circle, just as he hunted moose and caribou, so as not to approach his point too rudely and suddenly. He would keep on the lee side of his interlocutor in spite of all one could do. He was thoroughly good and reliable, but the wild creatures of the woods, in pursuit of which he had spent so much of his life, had taught him a curious gentleness and indirection, and to keep himself in the background. He was careful that you should not send his opinions upon any subject at all polemic, but he would tell you what he had seen and known. What he had seen and known about spooks was briefly this. In company with a neighbor, he was passing the night with an old recluse who lived somewhere in these woods. That host was an Englishman who had the reputation of having murdered his wife some years before in another part of the country, and, deserted by his grown-up children, was eking out his days in poverty amid these solitudes. The three men were sleeping upon the floor, with Uncle Nathan next to a rude partition that divided the cabin into two rooms. At his head there was a door that opened into this other apartment. Late at night, Uncle Nathan said, he awoke and turned over, and his mind was occupied with various things when he heard somebody behind the partition. He reached over and felt that both of his companions were in their places beside him, and he was somewhat surprised. The person, or whatever it was, and the other room moved about heavily and pulled the table from its place beside the wall to the middle of the floor. I was not dreaming, said Uncle Nathan. I felt off my eyes twice to make sure, and they were wide open. Presently, the door opened. He was sensible of the draught upon his head, and a woman's form stepped heavily past him. He felt the swirl of her skirts as she went by. Then there was a loud noise in the room, as if someone had fallen their whole length upon the floor. It jarred the house, said he, and woke everybody up. I asked old mister if he heard that noise. Yes, said he, it was thunder. But it was not thunder, I know that. And then added, I was no more afraid than I am this minute. I never was the least mite afraid in my life, and my eyes were wide open, he repeated. 
I felt of them twice, but whether that was the spirit of that man's murdered wife or not, I cannot tell. They said she was an uncommon heavy woman. Uncle Nathan was a man of unusually quick and acute senses, and he did not doubt their evidence on this occasion any more than he did when they prompted him to level his rifle at a bear or a moose. Moxie Lake lies much lower than Pleasant Pond, and its waters, compared with those of the latter, are as copper compared with silver. It is very irregular in shape, now narrowing to the dimensions of a slow-moving grassy creek, then expanding into a broad, deep basin with rocky shores and commanding the noblest mountain scenery. It is rarely that the pond lily and the speckled trout are found together. The fish, the soul of the purest spring water, the flower, the transfigured spirit of the dark mud and slime of sluggish summer streams and ponds. Yet in Moxie, they were both found in perfection. Our camp was amid the birches, poplars, and white cedars near the head of the lake, where the best fishing at the season was to be had. Moxie has a small oval head, rather shallow, but bumpy with rocks, a long deep neck full of springs where the trout lie, and a very broad chest, with two islands tufted with pine trees for breasts. We swam in the head, we fished in the neck, or in a small section of it, a space about the size of the Adam's apple, and we paddled across and around the broad expanse below. Our birch bark was not finished and christened till we reached Moxie. The cedar lining was completed at Pleasant Pond, where we had the use of a bateau, but the rosin was not applied to the seams till we reached this lake. When I knelt down on it for the first time and put its slender maple paddle into the water, it sprang away with such quickness and speed that it disturbed me in my seat. I had spurred a more restive and spirited steed than I was used to. In fact, I had never been in a craft that sustained so close a relation to my will and was so responsive to my slightest wish. When I caught my first large trout from it, it sympathized a little too closely and my enthusiasm started a leak, which, however, with a live coal and a piece of rosin, was quickly ended. You cannot perform much of a war dance in a birch bark canoe. Better wait till you get on dry land. Yet, as a boat, it is not so shy and ticklish as I had imagined. One needs to be on the alert, as becomes a sportsman and an angler, and in his dealings with it must charge himself with three things, precision, moderation, and circumspection. Trout weighing four and five pounds have been taken at Moxie, but none of that size came to our hand. I realized the fondest hopes I had dared to indulge in when I hooked the first two-pounder of my life, and my extreme solicitude lest he get away, I trust was pardonable. My friend, in relating the episode in camp, said I implored him to row me down in the middle of the lake that I might have room to maneuver my fish. But the slander has barely a grain of truth in it. The water near us showed several old stakes broken off, just below the surface, and my fish was determined to wrap my leader about one of these stakes. It was only for the clear space a few yards farther out that I prayed. It was not long after that my friend found himself in an anxious frame of mind. He hooked a large trout, which came home on him so suddenly 
that he had not time to reel up his line, and in his extremity he stretched his tall form into the air and lift up his pole to an incredible height. He checked the trout before it got under the boat, but dared not come down an inch, and then began his amusing further elongation in reaching for his reel with one hand while he carried it ten feet into the air with the other. A stepladder would perhaps have been more welcome to him just then than at any other moment during his life. But the trout was saved, though my friend's buttons and suspenders suffered. We learned a new trick in fly fishing here, worth disclosing. It was not one day in four that the trout would take the fly on the surface. When the south wind was blowing and the clouds threatened rain, they would at times, notably about three o'clock, rise handsomely. But on all other occasions, it was rarely that we could entice them up through the twelve or fifteen feet of water. Earlier in the season, they are not so lazy and indifferent, but the August languor and drowsiness were now upon them. So we learned by a lucky accident to fish deep for them, even weighting our leaders with a shot and allowing the flies to sink nearly to the bottom. After a moment's pause, we would draw them slowly up, and when half or two-thirds of the way to the top, the trout would strike, when the sport became lively enough. Most of our fish were taken in this way. There is nothing like the flash and the strike at the surface, and perhaps only the need of food will ever tempt the genuine angler into any more prosaic style of fishing. But if you must go below the surface, a shorter leader is the best thing to use. Our campfire at night served more purposes than one. From its embers and flickering shadows, Uncle Nathan read us many a tale of his life in the woods. They were the same old hunter stories, except that they evidently had the merit of being strictly true, and hence were not very thrilling or marvellous. Uncle Nathan's tendency was rather to tone down and belittle his experiences than to exaggerate them. If he ever bragged at all, and I suspect he did just a little when telling us how he outshot one of the famous riflemen of the American team whom he was guiding through these woods, he did it in such a sly, roundabout way that it was hard to catch him at it. His passage, with the riflemen referred to, shows the difference between the practical, off-hand skill of the hunter in the woods and the science of the long-range target hitter. Mr. Bullseye had heard that his guide was a capital shot and had seen some proof of it, and hence could not rest till he had had a trial of skill with him. Uncle Nathan, being the challenged party, had the right to name the distance and the conditions. A piece of white paper the size of a silver dollar was put upon a tree twelve rods off, the contestants to fire three shots each offhand. Uncle Nathan's first bullet barely missed the mark, but the other two were planted well into it. Then the great rifleman took his turn and missed every time. By hemp, said Uncle Nathan, I was sorry I shot so well. Mr. took it so to heart, and I had used his own rifle too. He did not get over it for a week. But far more ignominious was the failure of Mr. Bull's eye when he saw his first bear. They were paddling slowly and silently down Dead River, when the guide heard a slight noise in the bushes just behind a little bend. 
he whispered to the rifleman who sat kneeling in the bow of the boat to take his rifle but instead of doing so he picked up his two-barreled shotgun as they turned the point there stood a bear not twenty yards away drinking from the stream uncle nathan held the canoe while the man who had come so far in quest of this very game was trying to lay down his shotgun and pick up his rifle his hand moved like the hand of a clock said uncle nathan and i could hardly keep my seat i knew the bear would see us in a moment more and run instead of laying his gun by his side where it belonged he reached it across in front of him and laid it upon his rifle and in trying to get the latter from under it a noise was made the bear heard it and raised his head still there was time for as the bear sprang into the woods he stopped and looked back as i knew he would said the guide yet the marksman was not ready by hemp i could have shot three bears exclaimed uncle nathan while he was getting that rifle to his face poor mr bullseye was deeply humiliated just the chance i had been looking for he said and my wits suddenly left me as a hunter uncle nathan always took the game on its own terms that of still hunting he even shot foxes in this way going into the fields in the fall just at break of day and watching for them about their mousing haunts one morning by these tactics he shot a black fox a fine specimen he said and a wild one for he stopped and looked and listened every few yards he had killed over two hundred moose a large number of them at night on the lakes his method was to go out in his canoe and conceal himself by some point or island and wait till he heard the game in the fall the moose comes into the water to eat the large fibrous root of the pond lilies he splashes along till he finds a suitable spot when he begins feeding sometimes thrusting his head and neck several feet under water the hunter listens and when the moose lifts his head and the rills of water run from it and when he hears him swash the lily roots about to get off the mud it is his time to start silently as a shadow he creeps up on the moose who by the way it seems never expects the approach of danger from the water side if the hunter accidentally makes a noise the moose looks towards the shore for it there is always a slight gleam on the water uncle nathan says even in the darkest night and the dusky form of the moose can be distinctly seen upon it when the hunter sees his darker shadow he lifts his gun to the sky and gets the range of its barrels then lowers it till it covers the mark and fires the largest moose uncle nathan ever killed is mounted in the state house at augusta he shot him while hunting in winter on snowshoes the moose was reposing upon the ground with his head stretched out in front of him as one may sometimes see a cow resting the position was such that only a quartering shot through the animal's hip could reach its heart studying the problem carefully and taking his own time the hunter fired the moose sprang into the air turned and came with tremendous stride straight toward him i knew he had not seen or scented me said uncle nathan but by hemp i wished myself somewhere else just then for i was lying right down in his path but the noble animal stopped a few yards short and fell dead with the bullet hole through his heart when the moose yard in the winter that is restrict their wanderings to a well-defined section of the forest or mountain 
trampling down the snow and beating paths in all directions they browse off only the most dainty morsels first when they go over the ground a second time they crop a little cleaner the third time they sort still closer till by and by nothing is left spruce hemlock poplar the barks of various trees everything within reach is cropped close when the hunter comes upon one of these yards the problem for him to settle is where are the moose for it is absolutely necessary that he keep on the lee side of them so he considers the lay of the land the direction of the wind the time of day the depth of the snow examines the spore the cropped twigs and studies every hint and clue like a detective uncle nathan said he could not explain to another how he did it but he could usually tell in a few minutes in what direction to look for the game his experience had ripened into a kind of intuition or winged reasoning that was above rules he said that most large game deer caribou moose bear when started by the hunter and not much scared were sure to stop and look back before disappearing from sight he usually waited for this last and best chance to fire he told us of a huge bear he had seen one morning while still hunting foxes in the fields the bear saw him and got into the woods before he could get a good shot in her course some distance up the mountain was a bald open spot and he felt sure that when she crossed the spot she would pause and look behind her and sure enough like lot's wife her curiosity got the better of her she stopped to have a final look and her travels ended there and then uncle nathan had trapped and shot a great many bears and some of his experiences revealed an unusual degree of sagacity in this animal one april when the weather began to get warm and thawy an old bear left her den in the rocks and built a large warm nest of grass leaves and the bark of the white cedar under a tall balsam fir that stood in a low sunny open place amid the mountains hither she conducted her two cubs and the family began life in what might be called their spring residence the tree above them was for shelter and for refuge for the cubs in case danger approached as it soon did in the form of uncle nathan he happened that way soon after the bear had moved seeing her track in the snow he concluded to follow it when the bear had passed the snow had been soft and sposhy and she had slumped he said several inches it was now hard and slippery as he neared the tree the track turned and doubled and tacked this way and that and led through the worst brush and brambles to be found this was a shrewd thought of the old bear she could thus hear her enemy coming a long time before he drew very near when uncle nathan finally reached the nest he found it empty but still warm then he began to circle about and look for the bear's footprints or nail prints upon the frozen snow not finding them the first time he took a larger circle then a still larger 
Finally, he made a long detour and spent nearly an hour searching for some clue to the direction the bear had taken, but all to no purpose. Then he returned to the tree and scrutinized it. The foliage was very dense, but presently he made out one of the cubs near the top, standing up amid the branches and peering down at him. This he killed. Further search only revealed a mass of foliage apparently more dense than usual, but a bullet sent into it was followed by loud whimpering and crying, and the other baby bear came tumbling down. In leaving the place, greatly puzzled as to what had become of the mother bear, Uncle Nathan followed another of her frozen tracks, and after about a quarter of a mile, saw beside it, upon the snow, the fresh trail he had been in search of. In making her escape, the bear had stepped exactly in her old tracks that were hard and icy, and had thus left no mark till she took to the snow again. During his trapping expeditions into the woods in midwinter, I was curious to know how Uncle Nathan passed the nights, as we were twice pinched with the cold at that season in our tent and blankets. It was no trouble to keep warm, he said, in the coldest weather. As night approached, he would select a place for his camp on the side of a hill. With one of his snowshoes, he would shovel out the snow till the ground was reached, carrying the snow out in front, as we scraped the earth out of the side of a hill to level up a place for the house and yard. On this level place, which, however, was made to incline slightly toward the hill, his bed of boughs was made. On the ground he had uncovered, he built his fire. His bed was thus on a level with the fire, and the heat could not thaw the snow under him and let him down, or the burning logs roll upon him. With a steep ascent behind it, the fire burned better, and the wind was not so apt to drive the smoke and blaze in upon him. Then, with the long curving branches of the spruce stuck thickly around three sides of the bed, and curving over and uniting their tops above it, a shelter was formed that would keep out the cold and the snow, and that would catch and retain the warmth of the fire. Rolled in his blanket in such a nest, Uncle Nathan had passed hundreds of the most frigid winter nights. One day we made an excursion of three miles through the woods to Bald Mountain, following a dim trail. We saw, as we filed silently along, plenty of signs of caribou, deer, and bear, but were not blessed with the sight of either of the animals themselves. I noticed that Uncle Nathan, in looking through the woods, did not hold his head as we did, but thrust it slightly forward and peered under the branches like a deer or other wild creature. The summit of Bald Mountain was the most impressive mountain top I had ever seen, mainly, perhaps, because it was one enormous crown of nearly naked granite. The rock had that grey, elemental, eternal look which granite alone has. One seemed to be face to face with the gods of the foreworld. Like an atom, like a breath of today, we were suddenly confronted by abysmal geologic time. The eternities past and the eternities to come. The enormous cleavage of the rocks, the appalling cracks and fissures, the rent boulders, the smitten granite floors, 
gave one a new sense of the power of heat and frost. In one place we noticed several deep parallel grooves made by the old glaciers. In the depressions on the summit, there was a hard, black, peaty-like soil that looked indescribably ancient and unfamiliar. Out of this mold that might have come from the moon or the interplanetary spaces were growing mountain cranberries and blueberries or huckleberries. We were soon so absorbed in gathering the latter that we were quite oblivious of the grandeurs about us. It is these blueberries that attract the bears. In eating them, Uncle Nathan said, they take the bushes in their mouths and by an upward movement strip them clean of both leaves and berries. We were constantly on the lookout for the bears, but failed to see any. Yet, a few days afterward, when two of our party returned here and encamped upon the mountain, they saw five during their stay, but failed to get a good shot. The rifle was in the wrong place each time. The man with the shotgun saw an old bear and two cubs lift themselves from behind a rock and twist their noses around for a scent, and then shrink away. They were too far off for his buckshot. I must not forget the superb view that lay before us, a wilderness of woods and waters stretching away to the horizon on every band. Nearly a dozen lakes and ponds could be seen, and in a clearer atmosphere, the foot of Moosehead Lake would have been visible. The highest and most striking mountain to be seen was Mount Bigelow, rising above Dead River far to the west, and its two sharp peaks notching the horizon like enormous saw-teeth. We walked around and viewed curiously a huge boulder on the top of the mountain that had been split in two vertically, and one of the halves moved a few feet out of its bed. It looked recent and familiar but suggested gods instead of men. The force that moved the rock had plainly come from the north. I thought of a similar boulder I had seen not long before on the highest point of the Shongang Mountains in New York, one side of which is propped up with a large stone, as wall builders prop up a rock to wrap a chain around it. The rock seems poised lightly and has but a few points of bearing. In this instance, too, the power had come from the north. The prettiest botanical specimen my trip yielded was a little plant that bears the ugly name of horn bladderwort, Articularia cornuta, and which I found growing in marshy places along the shores of Moxie Lake. It has a slender, naked stem, nearly a foot high, crowned by two or more large, deep yellow flowers flowers the shape of little bonnets or hoods. One almost expected to see tiny faces looking out of them. This illusion is heightened by the horn or spur of the flower, which projects from the hood like a long tapering chin, some masker's device. Then the cape behind. What a smart upward curve it has, as if spurned by the fairy shoulders it was meant to cover. But perhaps the most notable thing about the flower was its fragrance, the richest and strongest perfume I have ever found in a wild flower. This our botanist Gray does not mention, as if one should describe the lark and forget its song.
the fragrance suggested that of white clover but was more rank and spicy the woods about moxie lake were literally carpeted with linnea i had never seen it in such profusion in early summer the period of its bloom what a charming spectacle the mossy floors of these remote woods must present the flowers are purple rose color nodding and fragrant another very abundant plant in these woods was the clintonia borealis uncle nathan said it was called bear's corn though he did not know why the only noticeable flower by the main roadsides at this season that is not common in other parts of the country is the harebell its bright blue bell-shaped corolla shone out from amid the dry grass and weeds all along the route it was one of the most delicate roadside flowers i had ever seen the only new bird i saw in maine was the pileated woodpecker or black logcock called by uncle nathan woodcock i had never before seen or heard this bird and its loud cackle in the woods about moxie was a new sound to me it is the wildest and largest of a northern woodpeckers and the rarest its voice and the sound of its hammer are heard only in the depths of the northern woods it is about as large as a crow and nearly as black we stayed a week at moxie or until we became surfeited with its trout and had killed the last merganser duck that lingered about our end of the lake the trout that had accumulated on our hands we had kept alive in a large champagne basket submerged in the lake and the morning we broke camp the basket was towed to the shore and opened and after we had feasted our eyes upon the superb spectacle every trout twelve or fifteen in number some of them two pounders was allowed to swim back into the lake they went leisurely in couples and in trios and were soon kicking up their heels in their old haunts i expect that the divinity who presides over moxie will see to it that every one of those trout doubled in weight comes to our basket in the future end of chapter 7 a taste of main birch recording by suprada urwal